Well, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. This is episode two. I'm Jonah Bennett, editor-in-chief of the magazine. I'm Ash Milton, managing editor. And I'm Wolf Tyvee, another editor. Another editor. All right. Well, uh, I think the first thing we can do is go over one of the questions we got last week. Uh, I'm ignoring all the other ones because this to us is the most important. If you were a dinosaur, what dinosaur would you be? All right. I, th- I think I would be a velociraptor. I think the velociraptor is uh, in many ways the most human-like. It's a social animal. That uh, It's a carnivorous uh, you know, you could imagine them having some intelligence and some civilization, even though they didn't. Yeah, okay, and Ash. when I have a dinner in the week, I'll be able to eat some of their descendants uh, in chicken form. I hey, man. Be... hey, man, at least they have descendants. Yeah, yeah, but I, I'm all about, you, you want to go out with a bang, so I would be a brachiosaur, because they're the most built ones of the entire timeline. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'd be a, a, a triceratops, because when you skewer other dinosaurs on, on the horns, you can eat it like a lamb skewer because my, my triceratops would have a mutation such that its tongue would be long enough to reach onto its horns. You know what I'm saying? And its tongue would have teeth. Of yeah. Course. Its tongue would have... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Absurd. So that's enough. This is that's hard hitting that. analysis. That's enough of that. Uh, uh, yeah. Let, let's flip over to some of the, some of the pieces. Uh, Jonah, I know you wanted to kind of give a summary before we start. So, yeah, well, here's what we're going to do for the episode. Uh, we're going to individually summarize both of the articles uh, that were published in the last week. We're going to start with the the piece by Stephen Borthwick on China, entitled China's Global Ambitions Can't Escape Soft Power Competition. And then, most recently, we've got another one by Pasha Kamyshev called Facebook's Political Problems Are Inherent to Centralized Social Media. So, Ash... Let's start off with a a brief summary of of uh, Borthwick's China article, and then we'll launch into some discussion on that. Sure. Okay. Um, so, in terms of the article, I mean, uh, as the title sort of gives away, soft power uh, in relation to the rise of China is the main theme being looked at. The article opens up with uh, some discussion about China starting at around the age of Augustus in the Roman Empire and looking at how it was this cultural force and not just an economic one. Um, Obviously, one of the things that comes up a lot in discussion is that insofar as China is a source of competition for the West, it's not actually in a cultural sense so much as a political one and a rival for development. Um, So what the piece does is it looks at how modern China has focused on that development aspect uh, and has, in a sense, accepted... Uh, the prerequisites of the liberal world order. It's spoken the same language uh, as it justifies itself. It's one cooperation um, by, you know, entering bodies like the WTO, um, setting up forums that kind of mimic a lot of the Western development framework, and uh, thereby getting into a lot of countries and increasing their global influence and scope. Um what the piece does is uh, it looks at also how that is distinct from the early era of the People's Republic under Mao, where a an ideological form of uh, cultural power was something that they attempted to construct. This didn't actually work very well. China was too poor to kind of capitalize on this uh, Maoist cultural mimicry. 
Um, and so the strategy has changed. Now, on the other hand, China actually has a, a large amount of economic power and a growing amount. Uh, Belt and Road being obviously the most well-known one, but the piece cites other examples. Um, China's basically taken control of Turkmenistan's petroleum market in Central Asia. Um, it supported the Taliban as kind of an anti-Western force to an extent. Um, and there's the Lapis Lazuli corridor, which the West has sought to set up, which is in competition with China. So we can see that there's uh, competition in a lot of these regions, and that purely economic power is not just going to be staying economic. And so the the central thesis of the piece basically focuses on this, that that hard economic power is something that, in a sense, by its nature, has to eventually become political and cultural power. Uh, and that's quite grounded, actually, in China's own understanding of how power works. So this is a the the central thesis of the piece uh, here. Okay, more directly to that, uh, so can you just straightforwardly give the strongest argument why economic power can't remain purely economic power? I mean, it's... Uh, I don't know if the piece actually gave that on a theoretical level. What the piece focuses on, and what I think is probably the correct question to ask is, does China think that economic power can just stay economic power? And the answer is no. And the reason we know this is because China, and this will be a, a bit of a controversial statement, but it's reflected in the piece, China's, uh, specifically the Chinese Communist Party's understanding of the world comes out of the Marxist tradition which is um, a, a materialist form of analysis, which sees culture, politics, and so on coming out of material conditions. Uh, and it, particularly something that comes up in this piece, which I think was quite useful to reflect on, is the fact that China has actually got a long history, and specifically the party has a long history, of using this kind of cooperation in order to ultimately increase its own political power. Uh, through the United Front strategy. So this was employed against uh, religious groups, rival parties, um, you know, other countries to an extent. It was employed during the rivalry with the Soviet Union. Essentially, the can you, whole can method... You, can you uh, briefly explain the United Front strategy? Yeah. So uh, essentially, the idea here is that when the party is in a situation where there there is some kind of rival that they don't currently have the power to really overcome or force uh, submission to themselves, uh, they enter into a win-win relationship with that organization. Um, but this is done with the long-term goal of ultimately being able to outmaneuver that organization uh, and overpower it. So, you know, the Kuomintang, which was uh, the, the nationalist uh, party, during the Chinese war against Japan. Um, it was a rival of the Communist Party, but they entered an alliance with it uh, for the sake of this kind of liberation war that they were fighting. Uh, once that war was over, though, they entered conflict with this nationalist rival. They eventually overcame them. And uh, once they had the upper hand, then the mission was to ensure their own supremacy in the political sphere. Uh, so... You know, based on that view of seeing the world, there's a clear pattern that exists in China's more global uh, economic scope. And we've seen signs of this already. So um, I, be I believe the piece mentions uh, in Kenya, one of the major ports in that country has recently come under Chinese control um, because of debt negotiations, right, that the country had entered into with China. 
Uh, we have Turkmenistan, as was mentioned earlier. Um, Turkmenistan was angling to kind of uh, work with multiple players in supplying oil. Um, China was able to maneuver in such a way that they basically run that country's uh, oil industry, at least, uh, for for the present moment. And so we see a continuing pattern here. And that ultimately, um, when when you have a power that's fundamentally sees economic power as the basis for cultural and political power, uh, you know, it, it's quite naive in a way to think that as that country becomes globally, uh, maybe not uh, the only dominant power, but one of the global dominant powers, that it will not do what it has done repeatedly in the past, which is to transform its power into hegemony across multiple spheres and not just the economic one. Well, I, I think it's important to sort of recognize that it's not necessary that that I think our economic power becomes cultural power. And I think this was the point made in the piece. It wasn't that like it was inevitable that they would turn it into cultural power, but rather that the current approach where we see mostly just operating within the kind of currently existing world order within current cultural hegemonies um, and gaining economic power, that, that that approach ultimately is not sustainable. Um, and then and then sort of we have this further analysis that is that that while well, the Chinese Communist Party is going to be fully aware of this and, and it's uh, presumably their intent to pivot to a cultural strategy once they have more economic power. But for now, um, the, the way I read the piece was the, the thesis was that that what they're doing kind of is just focused on the economic dimension, economic and political dimension right now. And and they're not immediately building that cultural power and this is not going to be sustainable in the long run yeah that that's correct so there is something of there there is a cause here and it is discussed toward the end of the article that um for china especially the mechanism is going to be that as uh development happens as as a lot of countries finish industrializing in some cases uh, China won't be able to maintain purely an economic advantage, right? So in the 80s and 90s, for example, they were able to offer a large labor force. Uh, as their country has grown wealthier, uh, part of the program seems to be that they're now going to outsource labor and outsource parts of the supply chain to places like Central Asia. Um, so it's not going to be able to stay... Um, on the uh, economic uh, axis, so to speak, um, as it tries to ensure its own uh, power in the world. And and yes, so in that sense, it has an incentive to also look at culture and politics. But the, the, the major point, the reason why that's not being done yet, um, you know, as it was tried uh, in the Mao era to a degree, is that the party's own self-conception uh, requires that the economic basis for power be in place before you can exercise it. Because this is, in a way, fundamental to the Marxist analysis. Um, and, and I'm sort of taking for granted here that the party is basing its view on power in large part on that. That's something that can be debated somewhat. Um, but but in, in order to achieve any other stage of power, the economic basis has to be there. On the, the point about Mao... Uh, what I found interesting is, well, the article talks about uh, consolidating uh, cultural mimicry into a true rival to American power. And I f think it's interesting that 
at least according to his his physician, his personal physician, who wrote about a seven hundred page memoir of of his uh, of his account with with Mao. Um, he he basically argues that who, who is this that wrote that Mao's personal physician. Okay, yeah. Um, and so the point there was he ascertained through Mao's long-term plans that that Mao was very much interested in a cultural synthesis with America, that he was incredibly enamored with the West, also with Western medicine, and had hoped for, uh, you know, not taking China, say, back to any kind of Confucian tradition, but creating some sort of hybrid between China and America that was that was distinct from either of them separately. Uh, of course, that I mean, that never really happened, but it's it's interesting to see the inside perspective there because at, at the time this would have been I think the 1950s that certainly was not the uh, the the read that analysts had outside of China. Well, and you, you know we're making a certain assumption here, right? Because when we hear the phrase like a synthesis with America, we think America, and we're thinking that means like capitalism, liberal democracy, and so on. I don't think it's actually controversial that. Um, a lot of uh, the Chinese political class saw a lot of what they wanted to be in America, but we shouldn't assume that when they were looking at America, the thing that was immediately jumping out to them was like the same things that were socialized into associating with America because right. we live in the American sphere of influence, right? America for a lot of the world means like the global power, uh, the empire, right, if you want um, and that global dominance and the and even I'd say the industrial development, right, being this like the the most advanced country in the world, uh, this, that's something that I think almost all socialist movements in the 20th century sought to become. Um, it certainly, was more it was more cultural and scientific than than anything else, because certainly, uh, you know, Mao would not have been open to political developments that reduce his personal power, and we saw this actually. Uh, in his commentary, his private commentary on the relationship of Khrushchev to to Stalin, and the the shift in the Soviet Union away from cults of personality, uh, and Mao saw this as as a threat to his own power, mostly because he thought that others in the party would try and and adopt the same line from Khrushchev and and attempt to oust Mao using that kind of development in ideology. So he, I mean, he would, he certainly was not open to the possibility of, of say, liberal democracy. I mean, that was out of the, that's, that wasn't even in the question ever, ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, when it comes to, I, I, you know, I think it's probably worth touching on, um, this notion, like what role is it that Marxism plays in the Chinese Communist Party today, and I, uh, one of you made this remark earlier, like they weren't going back to this Confucian form of society, and I think that's that kind of centers on the question, right? Because we have these Confucius Institutes and so on, and and even within China itself, right? There there have been kind of allowances made for these traditional uh, Chinese systems of thought to be studied again in some sectors, and I think there has been kind of a myth that. China has tried to like like the party itself, right? The political class 
um, has essentially abandoned Marxism and is trying to find some kind of substitute ideology, right? So people talk about state capitalism or people, will, you know, it's some kind of like national state-driven Chinese idea. And it it is definitely true, I would say, that like the the party wants to be seen as having a sense of continuity with this Chinese idea. But the, you know, from the Mao era as well, what was Mao seen as accomplishing? It was the rebuilding of the Chinese state. It was making China a sovereign power again. And the development of the party's own doctrine and ideology since then has always been very cautious. And anyone who studied Marxism knows like the focus on theory is immense and the focus on looking at concrete um, material conditions and situations is like the whole basis for uh, the analysis, right? This is why it's called a scientific form of socialism. So even though a lot of Marxists will, you know, they will treat Marx, you know, Marx or Engels or whoever as almost religious, just you can cite them and this makes it correct. But because it takes at least claims to take the scientific approach, the uh, idea of iterations and developments within the framework is actually inherent to it. And so when people like Deng and even Xi today come along and say that they've developed the ideology in continuity, that's that's actually entirely in line with the, the whole foundation of the party's worldview, right? This is how they're able to adapt and be nimble and survive through war and through cultural revolution and all these things. Uh, because the concern is how do you respond to those conditions in order to establish um, a political power? Uh, and so what, what applies in this global view that the peace takes applies like on every level uh, from the party's perspective, including so domestic. I, I mean, getting into an interesting tangent here, I think, but um, on this general question of sort of whether the party has abandoned Marxism or or to what extent it has changed Marxism or whatever, one of the questions that I think is is important there is like, what's their view on the withering away of the state? Like, like communism sort of ultimately had as its end, uh, you know, it has this this uh, period of development under a state, but then ultimately had this vision that the state kind of goes away in the end. And I wonder if the Chinese uh, theorists still hold to that kind of point of view or whether they've uh, whether they're starting to conceive of the state as a more permanent institution in society. Yeah, I mean, the thing with China is, right, that they, they I, I don't believe that the official party line is even that China is a socialist society yet. I, my understanding is the phrase that gets used is the, the path to socialism, right? And within the Marxist doctrine itself, the, the socialist state, there was kind of an early stage where the means of production uh, were, and, and the class relationship was fundamentally altered. But that in itself uh, wasn't the completion of this shift. So the idea of this higher stage of communism, right, where the state withers away, um, it's discussed in across Marxist thought. But, you know, in, in a sense, uh, it's something that can't be taught. There's almost an event horizon, right? Because uh, what actually happens once the, the relationship of class is altered is 
in a sense, difficult to predict. So the, I mean, the thing is as well, the Marxist conception of the state um, is quite distinctive in a way, right? It's the it's the hegemony uh, of one class over another. Uh, and almost by definition, the Marxist revolution is meant to abolish classes um, which differentiate between the different, you know, the modes of production and ownership. Yeah, so, but, but I mean, there's, there's like, there's the institution of the actual central power in society. Like, you know, it, it's not actually... Just speaking in terms of like the the reality of the situation, there's there's some central power in society that's dominating the rest of society and 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 making it sort of revolve around it, right? There's the central power of of some empire, and and so I'm wondering whether in China, are they still kind of, or were they ever uh, viewing themselves as like sort of fundamentally more of a vanguard that's bringing about some condition that is different from what is currently being worked on or are they conceiving of themselves as building some more permanent uh system of institutions and that's like it certainly looks like the chinese communist party is kind of building a more permanent system of institutions but i i'm curious how they're actually thinking about it and then like so like whether we want to use the term the state with all its like you know weird connotations for marxists uh, that that's sort of a side, but I'm just wondering: are they are they is is the order that they're building something they perceive to be permanent, or is it is it uh, a transitional stage to some kind of ultimate millennium? I just want to make it. I just want to jump in and make a, a basic point about the withering away of of the state. I think probably most Marxists would claim that that there hasn't been any kind of communist society that that has been uh, sufficiently advanced along a communist trajectory where that question could even be considered, right? No, no, no society right. that has had any yeah, relationship the higher stage of communism has, has been achieved to, anywhere, yeah, right, right, right. But there's, close. But there's the close. question of whether the state, A, believes that to be ultimately possible, and, and B, targets it, versus something more like targeting a... Uh, like a more a more direct and and permanent well and then, and that's why you have marxist offshoots uh that basically criticize the development of this strong state after a revolutionary period to to be the instantiation of a new form of capital or a new form or a new ruling class that sort of negates the whole point of the communist mission in the first place yeah mm -hmm. and i mean the you know the, the leninist response and lenin is in a way considered the most ardent proponent of, you know, this dictatorship of the proletariat, this worker state, which is quite authoritarian out of necessity, essentially. Uh, but it's worth mentioning, I mean, Lenin himself believed that there was, ultimately, there would be a withering away of the state. Um, but, you know, if you read something like The State and Revolution, it's, that doesn't really... I think the idea that you just end up with this very free society, that's not quite even how he would see it, because, uh, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, when he discusses that idea, uh, it's essentially that, A, production has become so advanced um, that, you know, this idea of from each according to his ability to each according to his need, this can be fulfilled. And because the relationship of class exploitation has been abolished, 
um, hegemony is no longer necessary. So in that particular sense, the state can wither away. But the actual like individual experience of life, you know, he he has these lines where he talks about um, how how does the human being become socialized into uh, the communist society? And I mean, it, it's it's a quite um, harsh, dis you know, dis highly disciplined society essentially that allows that to happen. So th this there's a Western idea, I think. That is a quite liberal idea, right? That like the withering of the way in the state means kind of this absolute freedom of the individual. But my my sense, at least, you know, from the the cursory reading that I've done, is that that's not really the sort of society that mar traditional Marxism saw as being able to ensure that the state would no longer be necessary. Um, does China believe this? That's an interesting question, right? I I think that like you'd probably have to somehow get hold of internal party discussion and documentation to see if that's something that mm -hmm. people believe. Um, well, the more, when the, I more take the... the more important question is whether the state structurally is going to be willing to dismantle itself. That is, that is right. ultimately or like what, what does that mean? Question. Like it, it sounds like the, like sort of the Marxist doctrine is getting into this kind of wordplay around what the state means or what the state is or something. But like, Ultimately, in any domain of order, there is some central power that is that is maintaining that order and, and imposing that order, and or at least like this is this is sort of how we see it. Um, and but usually, usually, and, so doctrinal elements that are inconvenient to the perpetuation of that power usually get uh, semantically played with, or right. so, or discarded but, in some way. Like it's very easy to kick the can down the road of dismantling the state uh, according to the withering of the state concept yeah. by saying that, oh, you know, comrade, it'll take another 500 years for us to reach that advanced stage of communism. Right. But but that's that's still like notably different in kind from a state that has said like, actually, no, the state is a permanent institution in right. any society. It is, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we are, you know, we're the vanguard of, of you know, the ongoing improvement or, of, or whatever, but we're a permanent institution and we're here to sort of maintain order within this. Yeah, domain. well, but it's it's also important to remember, right, that the there was a a Marxist presupposition, which was that um, capitalism sort of artificially constricted production, and that when the socialist society came into being, that production would start flourishing. So, the result of that was, uh, I think, in a sense, that it's the coordination continues to exist in the society but as production reaches a certain level and remember because there's no class exploitation that wealth doesn't need to go to a state that maintains class exploitation essentially what it means that the state withers away is that that coordination is no longer dependent on like uh, a centralized power that required that is needed to maintain um, the hegemony of the proletariat. So, so you think you think they um, they continue to affirm? Such I, a few you know, that, I that, think like, in name they the probably not have power. I feel my sense would be that formally, right? And they do still teach Marxism formally. They would have to maintain that this is probably true. But you know, when I make the claim that um, the party is Marxist in its way of thinking, I'm I think I'm probably making this in a more near term sense. 
that like uh -huh. the the marxist approach of viewing the world through this kind of materialist analysis uh is how they approach competition and political survival whether they actually you know believe in this eventual higher stage of communism um i mean who knows right uh it, it yeah, I, sure. I suppose in a sense you'd have to see uh you'd have to see if uh the chinese form of marxism is being used as a framework for developing the country or whether it's still this universal ideological idea and that's important right because uh even to the extent that china has started to practice like more cultural and political assertiveness uh it has not been in the ideological sense right apart from like re very realpolitik geared alliances um like maybe venezuela they haven't really tried to export an ideological idea and the marxist conception of socialism is internationalist so there does seem to be a contradiction here a, a point made in the piece which is that like or or like you know this brings us back to the piece which is that you know they're not actually exporting ideology or or cultural legitimacy or anything at the current time and and this is ultimately going to be uh, a, a challenge to them one last point i want to make is that it's it's curious that despite the insistence of the party that it's continuing the marxist tradition one of the first major attempts at western influence is called the Conf you know these these things are are styled these institutes are styled after the confucian tradition um yeah, that's, the confucius that's, institutes right right yeah well i think i that might be something like if we think about the the sort of connotations of these various things in the west like if they started setting up a bunch of maoist institutions and universities and like started talking about xi jinping's you know latest theories um i think we'd have a lot less kind of uh friendliness in, yeah, <laughs> sure, a lot less friendliness and a lot less interest in that than than Confucius. Confucius is like, oh yeah, man, Eastern philosophy, like it's it's great. Yeah, I think there's a certain um, obfuscation going on there uh, yeah. as to the purpose of the Confucius Institute. Yeah, sure, I, sure. but but ultimately that that's actually a really interesting point. Not to drag on too long here, but I I think like if depending on where the Chinese state goes with respect to Confucius, that actually puts that that's a big choice point for the West as well. Because if if China you know, decides that they're sort of not going with Confucius. Um, like, Confucius is a good social thinker, and maybe maybe he should get absorbed into the Western canon, so to speak. Uh, and, and like, you know, so if China was like, oh, actually, we're doing communism, we don't need Confucius anymore, if they continue that line, um, I could imagine the, the West sort of becoming more Confucist. Uh, yeah, way. I mean, I'm not sure if that's true. I, I think but that it's an interesting I think idea. that the and there there is a con because during the the Cultural Revolution, for example, there were these movements to essentially attack Confucius, um, and they saw him as like this bastion of uh, feudalism and so on. But because the Marxist conception of history is of like stages of development. Uh, that unfold and have these cycles where they then ultimately uh, disintegrate into subsequent stages of development. I think that the party's smart move there would probably to 
paint Confucius as a heroic, you know, integral thinker of the Chinese tradition within a particular stage of development. Um, I, I would not see the party trying to jettison any uh, important part of Chinese history because that continuity is quite important to them. Yeah. Okay, well, this is about all the time we have for this topic. Let's move on to Pasha's Facebook article. We've got about half an hour left. Okay, so the article is entitled Facebook's Political Problems Are Inherent to Centralized Social Media. Um, this is an interesting article. I'm just going to briefly summarize the, the argument. Um, so it starts off, uh, the first big chunk of the piece is basically kind of detailing the history of Facebook's political challenges, you know, in terms of how it's... Uh, Reactions to the timeline changes and, and privacy stuff and um, um, and some of the mental health controversy, like in terms of are people getting sort of uh, addicted to the platform or is it affecting them in negative ways? Um, and then kind of more recently into the political censorship and, and political issues. So, so Facebook has been having these challenges uh, throughout its history. And so, so with this article, we kind of analyzed well, what's actually going on there? What's the deeper structural reasons for this? Like, it's kind of, you know, everyone's got their take on on sort of the surface level, and, and we wanted to go a little bit deeper with this. So we kind of pushed the author to to ha have a, a bit more speculative theory attached to it. Um, and so the, the, the more kind of deep dig that the thing then goes, that the article then goes into is, is, we explore how the structural nature of centralized social media, so not social media in general, but but when you have social media that's controlled by a centralized company, um, how that structural nature affects these issues, like in terms of possible exploitation of the user, in terms of the political dimensions. Um, so if I can briefly summarize those arguments, basically when you have the platform controlled by a centralized company and they have a huge UI team that's optimizing the UI for, you know, engagement metrics and, and the things that are actually just in their interests, which is users spending time on the platform looking at ads. Um, when that's sort of their business model, you kind of have this, and then they have massively asymmetric power with respect to the user. Like the user kind of has to be there because all their friends are there and like, you know, they're not going to get invited to events if they're not on Facebook. Um, and and then the, so they don't have uh, often a, a huge amount of choice in the matter. And then the company has a huge amount of power in determining all the little nits, like nitty gritty of how the UI works and how it entices you to do things. Um, so there's this very asymmetric power relationship um, where the company's interests are not actually fully aligned with the user's interests. And that so we could expect that, that would, you know, produce uh, difficulties for the user's well-being. We see that with some of the controversies around privacy and mental health. And then uh, another big argument that we go into here is that if if you have this centralized company that controls this huge piece of the social fabric, that isn't just an economic relation anymore. It's a political relation that this company now has a huge amount of political power or the employees that are making decisions about, 
you know, what, what is going to be the, the content of people's news feeds and what's going to be the, how these, how these features are changing all the time and so on. Those decisions become political decisions uh, because they affect the, the, the structure and the outcomes of society. So some of the, some of the obvious examples here are like in recent years, a lot of these companies have changed their gun emoji from, you know, an actual gun to a water pistol uh, presumably to try to affect kind of uh, cultural ideas around violence or something. Um, so that's obviously kind of a political move. Um, there's been much work with the emojis in terms of uh, skin colors and representations of different groups. Those things, um, you know, obviously have a, a political dimension and are, and are on, that, on those grounds, like they become controversial in some cases. Um, and then, so those are kind of relatively minor things with the emojis. Then you have stuff like the fake news scandals, you know, Facebook's not doing enough to combat fake news. Facebook is doing too much to censor conservatives. You know, face, Facebook is allowing Russian interference. Facebook is selling data to like, you know, Cambridge Analytica or whatever the allegation was. Um, so you get, you get this politicization of the choices made by the platform, um, and so the argument we made is that the politicization of these choices leads to also a politicization of the corporate culture and the general industry around it. Um, and, and this is, this is inherent, like this isn't the, you know, a decision that they made at Facebook where they decided to politicize or that they failed to prevent the politicization, but rather that when you have an institution that wields enormous power in society, it will become politicized because politics is about, you know, who gets to decide how these big social levers are, are being pulled. Um, so the piece analyzes a bunch of that stuff and, and ultimately concludes um, that this political power is, is, is going to have to be integrated into the rest of the political order in society. And, but on the other hand, all the ways that you could sort of think of to do that in an orderly way, don't like, aren't, aren't really compatible with the, the company's, uh, continued existence as it is. So, um, you know, for example, suppose you wanted to regulate the 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 company's kind of political decisions so that it's it's not being quite so uh unrestricted in it in its choices and it has to have some level of neutrality or something well the fact that the company has to constantly be tweaking its its algorithms and constantly changing how it works to combat things like you know real problems like fake news and harassment and um um clickbait and all that stuff to 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 cleanly separate that ongoing management of the companies uh, from these political dimensions is actually quite difficult. So that that could just like throw a wrench in the business operations of the company to the point where it it kind of hastens the obsolescence of that those companies. Um, so that that's that's sort of an overview of the arguments in the piece. I I thought it was really interesting. We were being a little bit more speculative with this one. Um, but it's an important area of like, how does a society integrate huge new dimensions of political power? So the, uh, 
And there's an interesting point in the discourse right now about possible uh, regulatory options for how the state ought to uh, handle these other sort of rival power centers. And one of the suggestions is uh, removing uh, liability protections for content hosted on their own pl- on social media platforms in an effort oh, to man. get social media platforms to be fairer in their treatment of of users from various political backgrounds. The other option that I've seen discussed is to regulate these entities as common carriers so they can't simply uh, re- just refuse customers' service, uh, for example. But the problem, I think, with that approach is that an airline is, is quite a different entity than a social media company that that has an enormous amount of influence over the worldviews of, you know, the people in a country. An airline is, is just like, okay, you know, maybe this person is, is a bad person morally or politically or something, but does it really matter that they can, like, fly on an airplane? Does that really ultimately matter for, for much of anything? Does anyone even pay attention to that? Does it, does it mean anything on a wider scale? And the answer there is obviously no, but whether someone has a platform on Facebook or whether someone has a platform on Twitter actually does matter if they are influential enough because the platform itself, the characteristics of the platform provide power uh, to whatever message is being broadcast in a way that airlines don't. And so this question does not simply go away by regulating it as a common carrier. And that I think highlights specifically where the conflict of power actually is, right? Because some a company like facebook can't uh like outcompete the state on every metric of what it means to govern a country but there is this one very important metric which is uh in essence like tying people together and communication things that are fundamental because they shape culture but that um this like the state doesn't have enough information to regulate properly so one of my favorite parts in the piece was uh, where he discusses uh, Mark Zuckerberg's congressional testimony, right? And I mean, people saw these videos um, of politicians um, asking questions which basically demonstrated like the state probably doesn't have the capacity to regulate these companies. Uh, So there was Senator Orrin Hatch's question, you know, how does Facebook do business without the user fee? And Zuckerberg gives his like um, deadpan senator, we run ads, right? Uh, Very very simple things that would need to be known to properly regulate um, that like government doesn't have a core competency at uh, in the way that it's currently structured. Yeah. And even if you imagine sort of a, a very intelligent group of people being put together who really understand the issue to, to kind of like come up with some regulation of the thing, like I, I think the, the sheer stickiness of the problem of separating like the day to day business of of determine of like making sure people's news feeds that remain high quality and not dominated by junk and hate speech or like fake news or you know russian interference or like whatever all the things are that that uh like there's there's this whole raft of of potential problems that happen and some of them are political, some of them are not political, and some of them are like hard to, to tell the difference so that's that's like just this really sticky question of of like 
regulating those political decisions. Um, like, like there are actually a large number of judgment calls to be made and, you know, the, the state can't legislate, uh, how those judgment calls are going to, are going to go. And if they try, then it just becomes, you know, now it's a problem for lawyers and politicians, but the problem still exists. There's still this like huge piece of power in society that maybe now is a little bit clumsier, but, but isn't it, like you haven't gotten rid of its political nature. So there's a question I wanted to bring up with regards to that, which is about um, part of the discussion in the end of the piece, right, was this question of decentralization and creating a more user-controlled uh, network. Now, yeah. my question there, right, the, these networks, because things like network effects were discussed in the piece, these networks are useful insofar as they essentially tie like a large threshold of people together. And even in a network which is more user-controlled and more decentralized, presumably you're going to get, like, centers of coordination because, generally speaking, like, not all users have the same expertise and even, like, time, right, to properly administer these kinds yeah. of networks. Even if you just had admins, which were, to an extent, that role was voluntarily taken up and that administrative authority was ceded by other users in control, it seems like you would still have a lot of these same effects occurring, uh, even with the change in ownership. So I was wondering if you could touch on that from the yeah, perspective sure. of the piece. Um, so, yeah, so basically, so there's the first question of like, how are people going to end up on new decentralized platforms against the, the kind of network effect? And we can like hit that briefly before all the other stuff. Um, so I think one of the one of the sort of feedback a bit of feedback we got was that like well people are already kind of organizing more in private groups than they are on public social media now like public social media is like you know it's great for broadcasting and talking to to like your parents and stuff but um a lot of real social networking is being done like in in slack channels and and things like that um and so that's that's like an interesting development, but that, that actually like goes towards uh, decentralized social networks. I, I, I think I think the way it's going to happen with decentralized social networks is is a decentralized social network platform is going to offer a platform for being able to set up these smaller, more lo like locally controlled groups that um, that like just need to exist and the current platforms like for whatever reason aren't going to work for the for for whoever's doing that and so if they can get that sort of killer app of okay well you know we've got our palladium community and we actually want to bring together like you know 200 people from our audience to kind of have intellectual discussions like where should we do that should we set up like a php bb forum or should we move to some new uh decentralized social network that that maybe is going to be more modern and, and works better or something um like we're probably not going to do a facebook group um for various reasons and and so like if they can hit that use case then people will be on these things um and and so that that kind of leads into the structure that that you're talking about, Ash, which is that, um, like in the absence of big central company controlling how everything goes, you're still going to have people controlling how everything goes, but they're going to be these more local admins of of particular communities and so on. But I think this is where like this is where it's important to like kind of have awareness of, of the, the virtues of, of localism versus like kind of a universal platform. So 
if if you have these many smaller communities that are much more opt-in and much more local, you kind of, you have way more voice in these uh, in these these smaller communities, and you have way more exit, and so the user actually does have. Um, a, a considerable degree, sort of like more insurance against abuse, in these these um, these smaller things. If not, you know, they don't necessarily have like the big procedural controls that that a huge company will have, but they'll have um, they'll have like I, I think like less of a of an immediately f like faceless asymmetric relationship with this huge bureaucracy uh, that that like Facebook and so on are becoming. Um, and then the other dimension on that is from the other side is the interface of the state or the overall polity to these these powerful kind of sub communities. So in the case of Facebook, you have this one company that has like, you know, 300 million users and an enormous amount of political control over like as a, almost as a single entity over, uh, you know, elections in America, over people's political views. So it becomes this this kind of rival power center to to the current elite or the state as such that has to either be integrated or 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 otherwise dealt with. Um, whereas like a constellation of many smaller kind of online little cities, um, you know, much less likely to be a coordinated political entity and thus of much less concern. Uh, for at these higher levels of politics. So re basically the digital landscape, rather than being one massive commons that then has to have this large scale owner to properly administer it becomes uh, de decentralized and divided up into a bunch of smaller commons that are coordinated yeah, I mean, locally. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a way, like decentralized social networking looks like um, privatization of, of the social fabric. In in a I, now I don't mean like you know when when we think of privatization we often think of like oh well the government's going to sell some big bureaucracy to to some like monopoly company um, I, I don't mean that way I mean like the thing becomes uh, like m you know much smaller more locally administered and, and done by like a more market like process rather than a more uh, crony like process like like Facebook. Facebook can pretend to be a public company, but by its scale, monopoly status, and political power, it is essentially a public utility, and not just a public utility, but a, like a, a branch of the state almost. Um, and 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 so like that 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 characterization just doesn't exist for you know the Palladium social network, the the whatever social network, you know your your local neighborhood forum that's run on some so decentralized social media. Um, and like, like we bring up the example of Urbit in particular, um, I think it's important to have like a, an explicit example like that, not to say that Urbit's going to be the thing. I, like I'm, I, I'm optimistic on Urbit, but, but like more than anything here, it just forms a really good example of like someone having worked through how this thing could work and what it might look like. And the way Urbit envisions things is that there's, it's this unified platform of identity and, uh, and computing and so on, and particularly social computing, but um, but it, it essentially forms a platform for people to be able to easily build things like oh your neighborhood social network, your intellectual group social network, 
your, you know, whatever, your, your little hobby group. Um, it, it becomes a, a platform for easily building those things that are in the complete control of the people who built them rather than having this kind of third party of Facebook being able to unplug you at any time. Well, so I have a, uh, there's a follow up there because as we were, uh, we were on this metaphorical uh, line of discussion, one of the comparisons that actually occurred to me was something like William the Conqueror, right, in England. He doesn't just own, you know, rule everything in the country on his own. He he farms out the local areas to lords and the like, right? So that power and the day-to-day aspects of administration and governments are decentralized. And then what ends up on the sovereign, as it were, is plate are the things that have to be coordinated at the top level. But in that example, you still actually have a certain top-level coordination, right? So I wonder... Even in this decentralized system, sure, you have a local server or something or, or a Slack, let's say, very easy example, that's like a gardening club. Well, that's that's not too important. But if you have another one, um, that's a lot higher value, right? Like, um, say, like finance, for example. Uh, there's a lot of financial industry stuff being discussed uh, within a given community. That's actually something that would still be of political interest. So I'm wondering... Do you foresee a like hard roof or a hard ceiling on the level of scaled up coordination that's necessary? Or is it kind of you're not decentralizing everything and there still is a certain amount of top level coordination, but it's something that the state can actually handle? Well, it's like how much like what do we mean by top level coordination right like like you could get a political party organized on on one of these social networks and it's like you know a political party is is like you know basically by definition uh significant at the, at the national scale um and a political power and 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 like i think the, the the point is it's like that particular organization or that particular little sub community has a lot of power and now they just have tools to like organize whatever they're doing well like everyone else does um so it's but it's not like the platform itself that becomes politicized but rather a particular community that happens to be using the platform um and and so they're you know in society you're never going to have uh something where there's actual elimination of there being like sub communities of the polity controlling some aspect of power right like if there is in fact this like wall street class that kind of controls this what's going on in this area or this journalistic class or or you know a political party or a church or whatever right and these things have power and then the game of the state is kind of to or, or whatever system the elite is using to organize, like these people are kind of by definition the elite, the, the holders of the preponderance of power in society. Um, you know, there's some set of people who hold power. They need to cooperate among themselves. Usually that's through the vehicle of the state. Um, but there's still that political question of how do you coordinate all these things? But it, like this, this decentralized social networking doesn't like directly bear on that question, except that it means there's one less huge power dimension that doesn't have to exist like it in in the case of facebook you have this big new player at the table which is facebook which like controls people like has editorial control over people's feeds and all this other cultural power and and like 
you know, is potentially hard to negotiate with or hard to uh, hard to control for whatever the kind of mechanism of, of elite consensus is, it, it can be hard to integrate that. And so, yeah, like, so the there's fewer, still a the digital fewer... landscape, but this like large scale like super administrator essentially is no longer yeah. necessary right. to administrate at the local level as needed. Because think of how hard it is to to regulate Facebook under say common carrier rules because you essentially have to trust like let's say you're you're still you'll have the overarching common carrier regulation but you'll uh allow a lot of judgment calls to be made locally by the company uh in the same way that that airlines can can kick people off the plane for say harassment or something but that that really is the question then isn't it i think people have uh, been quite successful recently at moving some political positions under what they would what people would refer to as as base, basic norms of human decency or something right and yeah that, like a lot of these things are, are disputes over what even is basic norms of yeah human what, decency. what's basic decency what's harassment and and that is not clear in in any sense anymore because everyone has an incentive to take their preferred political positions and and, and turn and, them into those things. And, and turn them into those things so that they can get broader agreement. It's it's a bit yeah. of a and, Martin Bailey there. Right. And and the, the fact the fact is that like like yeah, that, that distinction will always exist and will always be a little bit politicized. But the fact that you have this big centralized platform where if you can get something to be considered uh, by the people in control of it or the people in control of regulating it, if you can get them to consider something to be a basic norm of human decency and not just your your personal politics, then suddenly you've gained this huge amount of power for your personal politics. Um, and, and so that incentivizes that that like weaponization of, of basic human decency. Um, but like getting back to the, the problem of like centralized versus decentralized uh, political powers and and the problem of the state uh, sort of developing political order. It's, it's really kind of about the dimensionality of the problem. Like, if you have this huge player, Facebook, at the table, you've added another dimension to the problem, which is you've got this, this big power that, that needs to be somehow cooperated into, into the elite system of cooperation uh, or somehow integrated. Um, or in the decentralized social media case, you just don't have that problem. You, you have still the groups that are kind of, uh, you know, all the usual groups, but, but you don't have that huge central thing. It's like the dimensionality of the problem has been reduced because the state actually doesn't really need to be directly concerned individually with all the little tiny groups. Rather, it needs to be concerned with big, powerful things. And then, you know, like like one of the things that comes up in these debates is like whether Facebook has the right as a private platform to kick you off. Um, like, you know, it, it, I'm I'm sort of sympathetic to the idea that you know private platforms should be able to kick people off, but also, as I said earlier, Facebook is in actuality not really a private platform anymore because everyone's on it. It has this huge political power in society. There's only one of it, um, etc. So it becomes like it's it, it's not really a private platform and so but but the decentralized one even if those individual little subsidies of the thing have a lot of 
power, they are in fact private platforms. When they are at that smaller scale, they actually become private platforms so that that argument actually works and is actually becomes kind of a satisfying argument rather than just like a frustrating argument. Um, and I think that's key, right? So like it to decentralize the social media makes so many of these problems actually actually go away and kind of like resolve differently and and to to more satisfaction. Yeah, you can maintain the principle that you control your own digital space. Right. This, and this yeah. distinction between private and public, I think, has caused a lot of confusion because people will point to, you know, the legal incorporation of the thing. Uh, regardless of the level of political power it attains and say, see, the thing is private. See, it says right here on the forum that it's private. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's basically a really useless definition of the word private because when a private entity has started essentially internalizing a lot of the... Uh, the public functions of society. A lot of the punk public functions of society and the state, then, you know, if, if we're trying to carve up reality like semantically in a way that makes sense. It doesn't make sense to continue to refer to the thing as as private as opposed to, to public. Like when if a it company walks is... like a state and it quacks like a state, then right. Like yeah, if then Facebook, it's a state. If Facebook is large enough to have a foreign policy, and it does, by the way, then it is effectively a state and, or, and or a, an arm of the state. or an arm of the state. Right, right. That's that's more what I mean. And and this notion of effectively X or effectively Y is is the only meaningful definition that counts compared to uh, some kind of autistic discussion about what the entity self-describes as in a way that is beneficial to that own entity. Right? Yeah, like, of course, of course the, it wants to self-define as private. Yeah, and, and a lot of this self-definition of pri as private or like, you know, the political actors involved in seizing its public power describe it as private for obvious reasons. Um, that it's just kind of mud in the water. I, th I think the definition of public and private that we should kind of use when considering these things is, well, it's it's private if it doesn't have the sort of significance in the central public functions of society. And if it does have significance in the central public functions of society, and it is one of the central public functions of society, well, then you kind of have to consider it as public. And, and I think that's the test like that's sort of the big distinction between centralized social media like Facebook and decentralized social media like Urbit. Like Urbit itself would be public in the sense that it's it it would be a centralized um, sort of public function of society, but the individual communities on it um, would be private in this sense that that and and Facebook on the on the other hand is because it is one of these central public functions of society, you can't any longer get along, get, get away with treating it as a private entity that, that has the rights of private entities or has, has like any of the same analysis as private entities. And that's where I think a lot of this like confusion and frustration comes from in these, in these arguments. So what happens when the state, like, like even compare, like, let's put this in the context of of the U.S. right now, what happens when the state uh, moves past internal opposition to the regulation of these entities and says that it it is in fact interested in regulating these entities and finds itself unable to effectively do so? What happens then? So it, it might it might like pull off the regulation, um, like it, it'll probably do something. 
I think regulation will probably happen, even regulation under common carrier rules or something, but it'll just be like we said, right? It's, it's okay, well, this now becomes a more explicitly public problem of regulating who's, who gets to talk on this platform. But that problematic dimension of power still exists, and now you've hobbled the companies a little bit. So what I would actually predict is, now I don't know if this will actually happen, but, but if I had to sort of tell a story, it's that you know the state realizes the public significance of a platform like Facebook, formally makes it have public duties through, the, through some scheme of regulation, like a common carrier-like uh, like regulation. And, and this sort of works, but doesn't really work, and it becomes a sticky political situation. Um, but ultimately, it also makes the company less effective at its core business and hastens the obsolescence of the company. Like we already see Facebook kind of becoming uncool. You know, it's somewhere you talk to your grandma. Um, and, and I think like Facebook being less able to to sort of nimbly optimize its newsfeed functions and so on uh, will we'll just kind of like make make the platform less attractive and and. Uh, you know, have people leaving for for whatever is the the new alternative. I mean, right now that's kind of Instagram, which is controlled by Facebook, as far as I understand. Uh, but I think in future, um, the, the space that was kind of mapped out by these centralized social media companies in terms of the space of like things that people want to do, I think that space will eventually be filled by the um, the decentralized options that people are building, like Urbit, and and then there's Tim Berners Lee has his project of like. The next version of the web that that kind of uh, has many of the same properties. Well, looks like we're out of time. Uh, right, thanks well, for listening, fun. everyone. This has been the Palladium Podcast episode two, and we'll be back next week. And of course, before we go, um, remember that Palladium is a five hundred one c three nonprofit project. We're, we're really trying to create a discourse here whereby we can gather up a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of people who are really wanting to think about the problem of, of how society works and how to make it work better. And we think this is a really important project. This is why we're doing it. And we really appreciate your support. So if you want to donate, just head over to our website, click on the donate link. Um, we'd really appreciate it. It would be really helpful. That's how we keep the project going. And as a managing editor, I would like to point out that I will be seeking pieces on why velociraptors are, are objectively the worst dinosaur. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's enough of that. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next week. See ya. All right, great. Bye-bye.